Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. My name's John. I'm going to pick up where Matt Wadarzik left off last week. He introduced this new series that we're doing on typology, that is, types of Christ that you find in the Old Testament. And the title of this uh, series is called Jesus is Greater, and I get the honor of talking to you this morning about how much greater Jesus is than Adam. Jesus is greater than Adam. So I'm going to spend a lot of time in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Genesis, and uh, in preparation for this, I was spending some time also in the, um, in the New Testament, in the book of Romans. And to set up the message this morning, I'd really like to hear this passage, Romans 5, 12 through 21, read for us, and read in kind of a modern translation, the New Living Translation. And it, so what you're going to hear is a little bit different than the words that you might find in the Pew Bible in front of you or in your English Standard Version if you're one of those folks. I happen to be one too. I've also copied that uh, translation into the bulletin on that notes page. So you can follow along there or you can, if you like to read uh, the slightly different words there on page 942, in the pew Bibles in front of you. So speaking of those pew Bibles, if you don't have a Bible of your own, please take that one that's in front of you and call it your own, consider it our free gift to you because we want everyone to have access to God's word. So I'm gonna invite Linda Femister up. Linda, you're right there, oh yeah. So Linda is my, uh, my sister in Christ. She and I belong to the same uh, gospel community. And some of you might call that uh, a small group. And she's graciously uh, agreed to read this passage for us this morning out of the New Living Translation. So could we give Linda our attention as she reads the word of the Lord? Romans 5, 12 through 21. When Adam sinned, Sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died. From the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God, as Adam did. Now Adam, is a symbol, a representation of Christ who was yet to come. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even, through, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it 
will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you, Linda. So as I've been studying that passage that Linda just read for us over the past uh, few weeks, one of the main things that stands out to me is this very detailed description of Adam and Jesus. And I wondered why God, through Paul, goes through such painstaking uh, detail to describe the similarities and the difference between Adam and Jesus. And I finally came to the conclusion that when we study a comparison, it helps us to get to know the real deal, the genuine article better. And I read that in a number of different translations. And since I, I kind of like to geek out on words, I like language a lot, I took note of how one particular concept was translated. So in that text that Linda just read for us, it says that Jesus is a symbol, a representation of, uh, that Adam, excuse me, is a symbol, a representation of Jesus. Other translations of the Bible capture that thought um, using different words, like in the ESV, you'll see the word type, you'll see the word figure or prefigure in some uh, translations. Last week, Matt used the word shadow. You also see prototype. In the NIV, they use the word pattern. So like a pattern. This got me thinking about my experience with patterns. So my, my mom and dad, they live in Squim. And they come from modest upbringings. That's a nice way of saying dirt poor Oklahoma. So my dad was raised in this tiny little town called Marland, Oklahoma, and my mom's from Ponca City. And they got married nearly 57 years ago. And my dad, he was an engineer. He worked as an engineer outside of the house, and my mom was primarily a homemaker. Now, I mean to convey that being a homemaker is a really important career. Caring for a family and running a household is, is super important. Anybody disagree with that statement? Uh, I'm guessing not. And one of the things that my mom did, and still does, is she would sew. She would sew clothes. And let me just say this. When you're rearing this, <laughs> it, it's expensive to buy clothes off the rack, plus nothing fits. So my mom used to make clothing for my sister and I and my dad and herself, of course. And I spent countless hours in fabric stores as she researched and planned outfits for us. Neat, right? 
Now, this is uh, really uh, kind of a nightmare. Uh, it's important work, but it's really pretty boring for a kid. So I remember um, standing in those aisles with those, those funky uh, cabinets where the patterns would be. And so a number of people probably sew here this morning, I'm guessing. Maybe, maybe not. Anybody sew? A couple. So you guys know about this cruel form of torture. for. <laughs> so... If you, if you haven't seen one of these, I, I brought a pattern. So these envelopes, they would sit in these cabinets along the aisles. And they, if you've never seen one of these before, they contain this really funky, crinkly paper. So what somebody with some skill, not me, can do is turn these funky patterns into a useful garment. See, they got little dotted lines and stuff that you can trace onto, onto fabric. So one thing I want you to know, though, is that these, these envelopes, they don't contain the genuine article, right? They contain this, this paper. So what would happen if I were to take this out, this is a lovely pantsuit, by the way. I, <laughs> what if I were to take that out and, and put this together and then wear this around? How long would that last? Not very long, right? Well, so the pattern is not the genuine article. The pattern is useful for helping us understand and or comparing with the genuine article. So I'm going to be going through some key texts about Adam from the book of Genesis. And I'm going to do these fairly quickly since he's all over like the first three chapters or so of the book. And I really want us to just grab the high points, what's important from these passages. So I'm going to do these quickly, and, but they're on the screen there for everybody to, uh, to see. And I'm going to be spending time in Genesis 2 and 3 for, the, for this morning. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So God forms a man. This man is later named Adam, and that's a Hebrew word for man or mankind. And he breathes his breath of life into the man and he puts him in the garden that he plants for him. And he's there with all these wonderful trees that he can eat. And just a little further down, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So we see here that God is speaking directly to Adam, the man, and he gives him a direct order, a command, it says. 
You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Direct order, command, straight from God. Seems pretty straightforward, right? At least on our side of the issue. Well, you probably already know what happens, but we're going to review it. I want to make sure we're all on the same page. So, skipping down and touching on verses 18 and maybe the last part of 20 there. Then the Lord God said, it's, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. And so, you remember, they go and they look for a helper for Adam amongst the animal community. And they can't find one, says down there in 20. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made it into a woman and brought her to the man. So this is where Adam receives the creation Eve. Eve comes to him through the Lord and his creation. And then also in verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Why weren't they ashamed? They're created beings. They're living in paradise. They're under the direct care of their, their creator. There's nothing to hide here. They know each other. God knows them. Nothing to be ashamed of. Everything is out in the open. They, they know everything about each other. This sounds like a pretty pristine place. Things are good. And along comes the serpent. And he tempts Eve. He lies to her. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So here he is entering the, the scene. He's tempting Eve with this idea of being like God, lying to her, twisting God's words. Still good at it to this very day. Then a little bit further down, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And she took of its fruit, and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I wonder where they found the pattern to that. Like, is there a Joann's in the in Garden of Eden? So never mind that I live in paradise and the creator of the universe is actually taking care of my every need. I want to be like God. And before you guys out there go slapping yourselves on the back too much, where was Adam? He's right there with her, isn't he? So 
this, the, the, the fear that they're working on there is if I, if I obey God, I won't be happy. I have to, I have to do something on my own to, to get that happiness. That's the, that's the subtle twist that, that Satan is doing here. But really what we have here is this rebellion. It's treachery. Adam wants to be in control. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Uh Uh-oh. Dad's home. This is a day of reckoning. That was pretty quick, wasn't it? Notice again that the Lord is asking the man, where are you? And remember that command that he gave him back in chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. He gave that to Eve, right? No, he gave that to Adam. Adam was the one who was responsible. Adam ignored the command. Adam not only failed to intervene, but he basically co-opted or actually approved of what was taking place. He was the one responsible for it, and he knew it. That's why he hid. And then, just a little further down, he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Here we have some of the most efficient use of blame shifting ever witnessed. Adam blames not only his wife, but God as well, for his own lack of obedience. And we really thank him so much for doing that, don't we? And to kind of complete things out, the result of what he did, down in chapter 3, verse 17, uh, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all of the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So we see the result of Adam's disobedience. The ground is literally cursed. That very ground that we walked across this morning coming into this place on this beautiful, sunny spring day in May is cursed, broken, not quite what it used to be. Makes you wonder what it used to be because it's pretty pretty darn nice out there. But it's not what it once was. It's tarnished. And as if that wasn't enough, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man. And at the east end of the garden... He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So they get thrown out of the garden. 
because Adam sinned. So let's review. What has Adam accomplished for us here? He wanted to be like God. He disobeys a direct command from God. He blames his wife and God. And this results in the ground that we walk on today being cursed, and he gets booted out of the Garden of Eden. Does that sound about right? So what's important here is what Adam did with his sin. What, what did Adam do with his transgression? So as I read it, he, he, he at some point recognizes his shame, and so he withdraws, and he tries to cover it up. He hid. He, he got afraid. And this fear, he, he, in this fear, he tried to deny what was going on, like, like nothing happened, right? And ultimately, he blames everybody but himself. And what does this result in? This ultimately destroys relationship. It introduces this conflict between he and Eve, but it, more importantly, it, it separates him and us from God. His actions created a situation he was unable to reconcile, and this resulted in separation from God. And before we're too quick to blame Adam, I'm, I'm not going to spend too much time on this idea of federal headship. Have you guys heard that one before? That's this idea that Adam, as mankind's representative, brings condemnation, shame, guilt, and death on all of us because of his disobedience. And you can argue that idea if you, if you want to. However, the Bible's really clear. It teaches us that we're all related to Adam by birth. We are all found in Adam by default. And further, we, we repeat these same blunders time and time again. Ever sinned? Ever wanted to be like God? Ever worshipped at the idol of self or wanted to be your own God? Yeah, me either. The truth is that my sin nature that I inherited from Adam is alive and well. No question about it. And it's pervasive throughout the world today. By our very nature, we're infected with sin. And in fact, people, people celebrate their sin. Our world, especially here in the independent West, is sending us messages and tempting us with notions like, you've got to be true to yourself. Affirm me and who I am. We've got to take care of number one. Isn't this how we often assign value? We, we base it on our own feelings and on our desires that quickly turn into demands. Particularly here in this part of the country, we're very in tune with our inner Adams. We follow that same path that Adam did in attempting to cover up our own sin. We want to be in control. We may not say it, but we really strive to be like God. We want to be Him, masters of our own universe. So one of the most quoted and maybe celebrated poems in modern times does a pretty good job of characterizing this stubborn sense of entitlement and independence that we, that we strive for. 
The English poet William Henley wrote this poem called Invictus. He wrote it back in 1875, and I think it got published in 1888. I'll just read it for you. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I love poetry, really. And I'll be the first one to tell you that this is a moving, powerfully written poem. It's just too bad that it celebrates the perpetuation of some really bad ideas and some really bad assertions that you can trace all the way back to Adam. Henley says he's unafraid. Do you believe that? Sounds to me like he's crafting a narrative to convince himself that he's not afraid. But he's afraid. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Adam might as well have written that. We want so much to be kings of our own universe that we lie to ourselves constantly. So I'm going to move on from this, shift, beer, shift gears just a little bit, and we're going to look at some of the similarities that Adam and Jesus share. So there's a whole bunch of them, but just a, just a few of them. Uh, first off, they're both born human. Adam was born, and Jesus is born human beings. We can find that in the gospel accounts, right? The, the account of his birth and the whole... Uh, census and Mary and Joseph, you can find that. They're both representatives of mankind. That's, that's the point in Paul's passage, that passage that Linda read for us earlier, where he's comparing them. That's what he's doing, is showing how they're representing mankind. And they both made very significant choices that had major implications. Major implications for you and for me as human beings. But they're, they're also really different. And you can see this in how they respond to choices. So Jesus had choices that he made while he was on earth, right? And it's what he did with those choices that demonstrate a really big difference. For example, would, would he claim what's rightfully his? He, he's, he's God in human form, and he had every right to display his God nature. And perhaps the best example that I can find is when he denies himself uh, in, in this passage in Paul, and uh, Paul's letter to the Philippian church in chapter 2, verse 5 through 7. And if you want, you can find this on page 980 in the Bible in front of you. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In, in spite of the fact that he was God, Jesus had rights. He could have exercised those rights. Of course, he, he, didn't, he didn't think that it should be grasped. That's the word there that's translated there, or seized, but empties himself. People that know Greek much better than I, I don't know Greek much at all, will tell you that that word that's emptied is actually maybe translated nothinged or zeroed. Jesus, in spite of the reality that he's God, made himself nothing for me and for you. He did that to save many, many people. So Matt mentioned last week that Something had to die to cover our sin. And in Hebrews 9.22, it says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You see, Jesus knew this, and that's exactly what he was doing when he went to the cross. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, the Son of God, a member of the Trinity, he comes to earth, he humbles himself, submitting himself to one of the most shameful and horrific deaths ever dreamed up, naked on a cross. It's one of the most glaring dichotomies, perhaps the most glaring dichotomy in the, in the history of mankind. But do you see any blame shifting going on here? If it were me, and I were in Jesus' place, I'd be like, Lord, these people that you gave me, does that sound a little like Adam? These people you gave me, I'm trying to help them. I didn't do anything wrong. They're hateful, murderous, self-serving. They're jerks. I'd want to withdraw. I'd want to deny. I'd want to run away and hide. But that is not what Jesus did. He humbly went to die on a cross. And instead, he actually says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they did this while they were casting lots for his garments. <laughs> How incredibly selfish we as people are. It's all about me. Who cares that they're, uh, they're hanging the guy over there, an innocent man. I need, I need a new tunic. That's what's important to me. So what... Did Jesus do with sin? By the way, not his sin, ours. He doesn't go down the path that Adam went down, does he? Adam tried to cover it up, blame someone else. Jesus, in spite of being God, approaches our mess with humility, and he serves. He offers us forgiveness and restores us 
to right relationship with God the Father. In other words, he, he wants to reconcile that broken relationship, that separation. He wants to rebuild it, transform it from the mess we made of it in our inner atoms, our, our, our flesh, as it were. And, and he, wants to, he wants to change that, transform it. And that results in a total 180-degree reversal from what Adam did. Being willing to submit himself to this horrific, shameful death naked on a cross, he's exalted and glorifies the Father in doing so. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Adam's disobedience resulted in curse for mankind, but Jesus' obedience results in hope for mankind. Remember how I mentioned that the Bible teaches that we're all related to Adam by birth? That his disobedience plunged us all into sin and death? And, and you, like me, you, you might have winced at that idea that, that I can be blamed for something somebody else did? Well, that idea, that other side of that coin, has, has a really positive side too. We may be born in Adam, but we don't have to die in Adam. We are being offered new life in Christ. Christ's obedience can be counted ours. That's the good news of a representative that did it right. The real deal. The genuine article. And his grace can overcome all my sin and all your sin. You might be sitting there, you mean to tell me, John, that I don't have to die in sin, shame, in Adam, that I can be born again into new life in Christ? Yes. That is precisely the good news of what Jesus did for those who put their faith in him. That's exactly what God's word is saying in the letter to the Romans where we started off this morning. Jesus came and bridged that gap that Adam and the rest of us could never do. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. The sacrifice of one man has the power to save many people in spite of the fact that we, we, we have many, many sins and are separation, uh, we're totally separated from God. You simply have to put your trust and faith in him to tell him that you accept his free gift. And if you've never done that, if you've never trusted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Perhaps today is the day that you would like to do that. 
If you'd like to, uh, if you'd like to talk to somebody about that, please, by all means, you can come talk to me. You can talk to one of the elders here. You can talk to an usher here. There are people all over this room who would love nothing more than to talk to you about that decision. And lastly, if, if the Spirit is working on you, I urge you, do not ignore him. Perhaps, though, you've been walking with Christ for uh, some time, um, I just ask you to consider what, what, what does that new life in Christ mean for you this, this coming week? How does that affect how you live your life? I would like to pray. Father, I thank you for your word, the way it teaches us and speaks to our heart. I thank you for the truth that it shows to us. I thank you for sending Jesus and his work and his offer to save us. For the good news that we don't have to live a life of shame and guilt in Adam, but can have new life in Christ. We ask you to please help us grasp this truth of what Jesus has done. And Lord, help us to recognize that it's your grace, your mercy, that is our hope and not our accomplishments. In Jesus' name, amen.